This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org to discover more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 293rd episode of the History Ghost Bump Podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I am your host, Diane. On this episode, we're going to be talking about caves in Kentucky and the trickster, otherwise known as Coyote. This episode was inspired by the Hellier documentary produced by Greg and Dana Newkirk who hosts the Week and Weird website and also run the Traveling Museum of the Paranormal and Occult. If you have not seen the Hellier documentary, and this is spelled H-E-L-L-I-E-R, I encourage you to do so. It has five parts and it's absolutely free to see it. You just check it out at hellier.tv. I was really excited to watch this documentary because it was going to be talking about something that is of interest to me, strange creatures known as goblins. The first time I'd ever heard of people seeing goblins was the case of the Kelly Hopkinsville encounter. And I believe I covered this on a moment noddy in a previous episode. But basically what happened is there was this UFO sighting and then several people in this small town thought that they saw these goblin-like creatures. It was a very bizarre story. And when you have so many people claiming to see something, you tend to lean towards perhaps believing it because how could they all be hallucinating this thing? Well, Greg Newkirk had been contacted by somebody in an email telling him that he lived near a cave in Kentucky and that he'd seen these goblin-like creatures coming out of it. And I don't want to give you guys any spoilers about this. I want you to watch it for yourselves. But I will tell you that they spend five episodes trying to find these goblins. And in the process of doing that, they joined forces with a two-man team of paranormal investigators who had been the resident investigators at the Stanley Hotel in Estes Park, Colorado. So these guys had a lot of experience when it came to looking for ghosts and other things. And they have a really interesting technique that they use with the spirit box. As you guys know, when I talk about the spirit box here on History Ghost Bump, I usually kind of, eh, whatever, don't put a whole lot of trust in this apparatus, which is basically a broken radio that's just scanning through the channels and every so often you'll hear words pop out and people claim that these are spirits trying to talk and these are words that they're using. But of course, for me, if it's only one word, it could just be something that's coming through on a regular radio station. Now, if it's a full sentence... I tend to believe it a little bit more. Anyway, these guys, the technique that they use is one of them covers his ears with earphones so he can't hear anything and also puts an eye cover on so that he can't see anything. It's like he's blocking out all the stimulation and he also can't hear the conversation that's going on around him. What he's getting through those headphones that he's put on his head is the spirit box messages. And then he calls out what he's hearing. 
So you have Greg and Dana that are trying to communicate with a spirit while this guy is throwing out things almost like a verbal Ouija board and giving them these messages. It was very creepy to watch, and I have a little bit more faith in that, seeing as how he isn't hearing what they're saying and he's blocking his senses and such. Of course, we're watching something on TV that could be rigged, so I have to believe that they're all on the up and up. And I tend to believe that Greg and Dana are. Well, while they were doing one of these sessions, something really interesting happened. And I am going to share that for you, so it might be a little bit of a spoiler. Whatever spirit they're talking to caused this gentleman to call out Coyote. And they all take their flashlights, and they're staying in this cabin out in the middle of nowhere. And so it's possible for coyotes to be out there. So they're putting their flashlights out and they're looking around, seeing if they could see any eye shine. And they're under the belief that there is a coyote out there and that the spirit is warning them. And for a little bit, I was thinking the same thing. But as I continue to watch the documentary and all of the parts of it, I started to think, you know, there is another meaning behind coyote. For Native Americans, coyote is the trickster god. And I couldn't help but think, as I watched what happens through this documentary, that somebody was playing with the Newkirks, possibly a trickster. And perhaps this spirit wasn't warning them of a coyote that was out on the edge of the property that they were staying on, but perhaps it was identifying who it was. So after watching this and seeing them go into caves and trying to communicate with spirits in caves, I was inspired. I've been in two large cave systems in Kentucky myself, Mega Cavern and Mammoth Cave. And I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to do a show on the Kentucky caves and, of course, the trickster altogether? So that's what we're going to be discussing on this episode. Before we get into that, I want to welcome into the Spooktacular crew... Susie with a Z-I-E at the end, Allison with two L's, Stace, Donna, Tiffany with a Y, Kate with a K, Jessica, Kevin, Mike, Bobby with a Y, Christy with a K-I-E, and Anel. Welcome, everybody. And now, this moment, Naughty. The moment Naughty was suggested by Kayla Buss. Leave it to Florida to have the prince of a giant penguin show up on a beach. In Clearwater, Florida, in February of 1948, mysterious three-toed footprints showed up on the sand of several of the beaches on the Gulf Coast. These were really large prints, measuring 14 inches long and 15 inches across. People were stumped as to what could be creating them, and since the prints seemed to originate from the water... They knew it had to be some kind of waterfowl or creature. Experts came to photograph and plaster cast the prints, and they estimated that the creature probably weighed nearly 2,000 pounds to make prints so deep. They started calling the creature the Clearwater Monster. People even claimed to spot a large furry creature in the water, which was impossible because the Clearwater Monster was a man. Yep, it was all a hoax, perpetuated by Tony Signorini. He crafted himself a pair of 30-pound, three-toed lead shoes, and then after strapping them on, he stomped around the beaches near Clearwater for 10 years. Signorini had a partner in crime, his boss at Auto Electric, Al Williams, whom was a well-known hoaxer. Signorini revealed the hoax in 1988. 
He had kept the metal shoes and wore them for photos to prove he was the giant monster penguin-like creature. And that certainly is odd. And now, this month in history. In the month of March, on the 5th in 1946, Winston Churchill declares that the Iron Curtain has descended. Churchill was coming off of a political loss, having not been re-elected prime minister. President Harry Truman decided to cheer him up by inviting him to give a speech at Westminster College in the little town of Fulton in Missouri. Churchill jumped at the chance to build his American reputation. The president joined him as he traveled to Fulton on the train, and while they rode, Churchill asked the president to read a draft of his speech. The president told him it was very good, neither man knowing that the speech would go down in history. Churchill told the crowd at the college that, quote, a shadow had fallen upon the scene so lately lighted by the Allied victory. He explained that shadow was coming from Stalin's Soviet Union. Churchill went on to declare, from Stettin in the Baltic to Tristi in the Adriatic, an iron curtain has descended across the continent. He emphasized the need for Britain and America to stay strong allies. Churchill was the most famous man to first use the term iron curtain, and before long, the Cold War was on. is a large void found in the ground or in the side of a mountain or hill. A void is an emptiness, and within that great nothing, one can find some of the strangest things. The state of Kentucky is not only a place full of caves, these voids seem to exist under the entire state, with the largest cave system in the world being located here. Add to the limitless possibilities of what could exist within caves, the fact that these caves are carved mostly out of limestone and you have the perfect makings for strange supernatural activity. Mega Cavern and Mammoth Cave are a wonder to behold. There are stories of other things here that cannot be as easily explained as natural wonders and formations. Join me as I explore the history and hauntings of Kentucky's caves and the trickster who may be playing within them. When I visited Mammoth Cave, I was blown away with the immense size of the system, and I saw but a small fraction of it, and I was joined by several members of the Spooktacular crew. We had a great time touring, and we got some great pictures of these gorgeous formations, stalagmites and stalactites, and all of these things that get formed when water passes through a cave system. There's a multitude of passages, crawlways, and chambers. And then on top of the fact that we're in one of the largest cave systems in North America, the Appalachian Mountains are here. This is a mountainous region reputedly full of magic. I've talked about Appalachian folk magic in a bonus episode for supporters. We've touched on it a little bit in other episodes when we've talked about places in North Carolina. Caves are thought to harbor spirits, and on a recent bonus cast about the Cave of the Crystal Sepulchre, I shared that the Maya thought this was the entrance 
to hell. And you can understand why people would think that about caves, because when you go into a cave, it's dark. You don't know what's in front of you. You don't know where it could lead. And some of these caves go on and on and on. And many times people get lost in these caves. And getting lost in a cave must seem almost like hell to a person. With all of these crevices, it's easy to believe that creatures could live here. Perhaps goblin-like creatures. Kentucky has a lot of places for them. Not only these caves, which to me seem like they were old mine shafts in this Kentucky town of Hellier, but Kentucky has, just to name a few, Carter Caves, Diamond Caverns, Onyx Cave, Outlaw Cave, Mammoth Onyx Cave, Hidden River Cave, Crystal Onyx Cave, Cub Run Cave, and Last River Cave. There are caves upon caves here. Since the early 1800s, tours have been run through the cave systems of Kentucky. The first one I visited here was Mega Cavern. That was about three years ago. This is an immense network of open areas that required riding in a tram in order to tour much of it because it is so large. This place has bike roads and zip lines and all matters of entertainment. I think I remember there even being a place where they could host dances and other things. There's offices down here. And it once served as a bomb shelter because it was underground and had so much area for sustaining a large population of people. This was back during the Cuban Missile Crisis, and it could have housed up to 50,000 people if a nuclear attack had occurred. Mega Cavern is near Louisville, Kentucky, and is actually considered the biggest building in Louisville. Yep, you heard that right, building. This cave system started as a massive limestone quarry known as Louisville Crushed Stone, owned by Ralph Rogers, that was worked by miners for 42 years, starting in the 1930s. The cave stretches over 4 million square feet and is considered a building because of the support structure that has been installed inside of it over time. It's so secure that commercial investors bought it in 1989 to turn it into a storage facility, and you do see pods stored down there when on a tour. Recycled concrete, brick, block, rock, and dirt were used to fill in areas to make this support system stronger. Temperatures down here run around 58 degrees year-round. And if you do happen to do the tram tour, we were able to take a dog with us, so they are welcome on the tram tour. When we visited, we were just going to see what we thought was a really cool cave system. We weren't expecting to hear any ghost stories but there are ghost stories that go with Mega Cavern. The ghost story that goes with Mega Cavern has a picture that goes with it as well as proof. This spirit that appears in the photograph looks to be a young Native American girl. Nobody knows who she is or why she would be here, but somebody was taking a picture and up on one of the ledges where it would be impossible for a human to be, there is a human standing up there, or at least something in the shape of a human. I saw the picture for myself. It looked like the real deal. Of course, I tend to not believe pictures unless I've taken them for myself. But I could see how there could be something creepy, like a spirit down here in this cavern. It's a great place to visit, so I encourage you to check it out sometime. The next cave system I want to look at is Carter Caves State Resort Park. And this is in Carter County, Kentucky. Now, this is a cave system I have not visited. It had been in private hands for almost 200 years, and it wouldn't be until 1946 that the Commonwealth of Kentucky would have the property donated to them. And so they have turned it into this state park, and they've got 
a lodge there, cottages that you can stay in, you can camp there, there's a golf course, there's putt-putt, and also there are guided tours of the caves, and there are several caves here. Cascade Cave and X Cave are available for tours year-round. Bat Cave and Saltpeter Cave are only open in the summer, and that is to protect the bats during their winter hibernation because many of them are under threat of white-nose syndrome, and so this is kind of a way to keep that from happening to them. Saltpeter Cave was mined during the War of 1812 because saltpeter, or what is more formally known as potassium nitrate, is something that was used in gunpowder. It was a major component of it, and so they needed a lot of it during this time, and they found it in this cave. Obviously, over time, there was not as much of a need for potassium nitrate, and so mining in this cave came to an end. Cascade Cave is actually three different caves that are all in the same area, and this is the largest cave that's in the park. It has an underground lake room and a really cool 30-foot underground waterfall. The cave that is of interest to me here is X Cave. X Cave got its name because there are four entrances that meet in the center, so it's in the shape of an X. But what makes it really interesting to me is the fact that it has a ghost story to go with it. Now, the legend that goes with this cave is that when it was reopened for tours, The bones of two Native Americans were found inside, along with some silver artifacts. The spirits of those two Native Americans are said to haunt this cave. The story that goes with that is that there was a warrior named Hurricane. He had found this cave, and when he went inside, he found a vein of silver there. He didn't want to let anybody know about it because he wanted to use the silver for himself to make jewelry. And he wanted to make it for a specific girl. That would be the chief's daughter, Manuita. When Hurricane didn't come home after battle, Manuita believed he was dead. So she committed suicide by jumping off the cliff to her death. But he hadn't actually gone away to battle. He'd only gone to the cave to mine more silver. He was going to ask her to marry him. And he wanted to make her some gifts for that occasion. Probably a really nice ring. He came across Manuita's body on his way home and he picked her up and he took her back to the cave that he had found. Now, the chief found out that Hurricane had taken Minuita's body to this cave, and he believed that he had killed his daughter, or for some reason, he was responsible for her death. He wanted to see his daughter's body one last time, and he asked Hurricane if he could see it. So he goes in to visit Manuita's body, but he never made it out of the cave. No one knows if he just decided to stay there or if he became lost. But it's said that the bones that were found here are from Manuita and her father. I wasn't able to find any ghost stories to go with any of these other caves that are in Kentucky. But I wouldn't be surprised if there were some haunting tales inside of these caves. Or if there were even some goblins living in there. One cave in Kentucky that has a lot of stories to go with it, though, is Mammoth Cave. Next to the Bell Witch Cave, this is probably the most haunted cave in all of America. This place is massive, and it is so gorgeous, so many neat things to see inside of it. There are tons and tons of crevices and hideaway places, so it's not surprising that there seems to be enough ghosts to fill all of these different crevices. It's considered the longest cave in the world, and that's because there's a lot of little caves that have connected to it. And there's a reason why a lot of these caves are connected to it to this day. It wasn't necessarily that this was something natural that happened, more like something man-made that happened. 
When we look at the history of Mammoth Cave, we have to wind it back thousands of years. The first people to use this cave were the indigenous people here. And many of them used it not only to mine some of the minerals and deposits that were inside, but they also used it as a place for burial. Many indigenous people consider caves to be a very spiritual place, a place where our physical lives connect with spiritual lives, a way to get into the spiritual world. There's a connection there. And the deeper you go into the earth, the closer you get to the spiritual side of things. When you think that many of us are raised with this idea that hell is somewhere down below us, so it's got to be in the center of the earth, it's not surprising that a lot of these indigenous people thought the same thing of caves, that they all led to hell or Hades or some other afterlife. What these people left behind were not only artifacts, but also mummies. The elements in a cave are perfect for mummification, and that happened with a lot of these people who were placed here. Their bodies became mummified, and for many years they were an attraction, the mummies of the caves, something to be seen. These weren't just indigenous people that were left behind as mummies, though. There were early explorers who came through here that lost their way, and their bodies being left behind became mummified. The more modern world would not find Mammoth Cave until the 1700s. It was during the French and Indian War that a British soldier became the first reported European to reach this region. Legend has it that the first white man to come to Mammoth Cave was a man who went by the name Hutchins, and he apparently was out bear hunting one day, and he finds this bear, he's chasing it down, the bear runs into a cave and he follows after it, and bingo, Mammoth Cave is discovered. Now, whether that's a legend or a true story, I don't know, but supposedly this happened in 1797. But this man would not be the first one to own the cave. That would be Valentine Simmons. He claimed about 200 acres of land in this region, and that included the cave. When he delved into the cave, he discovered that it had saltpeter in it, which, as I said before, was used for gunpowder, and bingo, this was going to be a saltpeter mine. He sold it eventually to the McLean brothers, and they were the ones who really began the processing of these saltpeter deposits. It would continue to trade hands as the saltpeter was getting pulled out of the cave, and the War of 1812 would drive up the cost of saltpeter in production. And so Mammoth Cave upped their production. It just became really expensive to try to pull this out of there, and eventually they gave up. After the cave could no longer be used for saltpeter production, there were people who began to say, you know, this would be a great tourist destination. People would love to come in and see these things that are inside the caves. Plus, they'd found these mummies that they wanted to show off. There was a man named Charles Wilkins, and he had owned the cave and had been running some of the saltpeter production. He joined forces with a man named Hyman Grotz, and this was in 1815. And they were the ones who began turning the cave into a tourist destination. They called it Flats Cave. But eventually, the name changed to Mammoth Cave as they started realizing this place was Mammoth. It was huge. These early visitors could see the rotunda, which was the first large room that you would enter. And it was just this massive chamber. Then they could move on to seeing the crevice pit, the bottomless pit, and the haunted chambers. People who toured the cave got a feel for how dangerous it really could be. You think nowadays, if you've toured a cave, they have lots of safety features, bars for you to hold on to, stairs, that kind of thing. 
Back in the day, they really didn't have that, and you had to squeeze through very narrow passages. It was pretty dangerous. But that didn't keep celebrities from wanting to come visit Mammoth Cave. Charles Dickens was there, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Jenny Lind, Edwin Booth. Lots of celebrities would come. The early cave tour guides that were here were slaves. The first people to do work in these caves, mining the saltpeter, were slaves. So it was only natural that they would become the first tour guides. In 1838, a man named Franklin Gorin, he was a lawyer in Kentucky, decided that he would like to take over the cave. So he paid $5,000 for the rights to the cave. And he went about doing a lot of improvements to them. It was thanks to him that inns got built so that people had a place to stay when they came to see the cave. Roads were improved. He just did a lot to build up the cave and the popularity of it. He also did a wonderful thing. He brought in a slave named Stephen Bishop. He was about 17 years old at the time, and he said, I would love for you to become a tour guide here. Stephen Bishop loved the cave. He loved to explore the cave, and the early discoveries about this cave are thanks to this man. He was very, very brave. The furthest place that any person who was exploring the cave had gotten to was the bottomless pit. Nobody could get past it, so they didn't know anything about the cave past this area. Well, Stephen Bishop was going to change that, and he changed it in an ingenious way. He took a long wooden ladder, he laid it over the bottomless pit, took his lantern and held it in his teeth, and crawled across that ladder. Now, I'm afraid of heights, so I think he's crazy. But what he did is he opened up the cave to further exploration. Because of all the work that he did here at Mammoth Cave, he is credited with being one of the greatest explorers there and discovering most of the great things about this cave. Stephen Bishop would continue to work in this cave his entire life, which was a short life. I believe he died at the age of 37 from some kind of natural causes. He had always wanted to earn his freedom and the freedom for his wife and his child, and he wasn't able to do that before he passed away. The next person to make a really big impact on Mammoth Cave was John Krogan. He was born near Louisville, Kentucky, but he ended up going overseas. And while he was there, he heard about Mammoth Cave, and he heard how they were really trying to develop it, putting an inn in, redeveloping roads, and he thought that he could really make a difference here. He believed that the cave needed a really large grand hotel. So he purchased the cave from Franklin Gorn in 1839. Now, the interesting thing about this large hotel that he wanted to build, he planned to make it underground. He wanted to actually put it in Mammoth Cave. Now, this never came to fruition, but he did build the Mammoth Cave Hotel. And this hotel was made from two log buildings. He also began building more public roads. He did a lot of advertising. And although it was already a really popular tourist destination, it became even bigger under his care. And then Krogan got another idea. It was an idea for some structures to be put inside of Mammoth Cave, not an inn or a hotel, but rather wooden and stone huts. And these were going to be built for a specific type of people, people who had tuberculosis. You see, Krogan thought the cool air and the dampness in the caves was perfect for healing sick lungs. And he thought he'd found the cure for TB, and he wanted to prove it. So he was going to bring some tuberculosis patients down here to live so that he could prove to the world that caves could heal TB. He managed to get 15 patients with TB to come live in the huts that he had built here. Now, you can imagine being asked to live 
underground in a cave is not something that sounds like a really cool idea. It's dark, there's nobody around, and there's really no fresh air. The other thing that Krogan didn't think about is in order to light the way down here, you've got to have fire. And fire makes smoke, which doesn't go well with lungs. But on top of that, you have other noxious scents that are down here. And this really is not a conducive thing for people who have sick lungs. Also keep in mind, you've got tourists coming through the cave. And these people are living down there. I can see where some haunted stories are coming out of this, where they're looking over and you're seeing people in these white gowns who look very frail, almost skeletal because they become so skinny. Because as we know, TB is also called consumption. So it basically is eating the person alive. They're very pale. Their eyes probably look a little weird because they haven't been in light for a while. So their pupils are probably massively dilated. They probably look like some very weird creatures. Well, eventually, one of the people who had TB said, you know what, this isn't working for me. My lungs are getting worse down here. I need to go. And so he went back up to the real world. And eventually, the rest of the patients followed suit. Unfortunately, all of them did die eventually. And ironically, Krogan developed TB himself, and it did take his life. These wooden and stone huts are still something you can see when you visit Mammoth Cave on certain tours. So we come into the 20th century, and we have something that gets started with all of these Kentucky caves, and it's called the Cave Wars. You see what happened is back in the day, as you're probably getting a feel for as I'm telling you about the history of these caves, these were privately owned. And if you're privately owning a cave that you're using as a tourist destination, you want to get everybody to come to your cave. When you've got a lot of caves all in the same area, you got to do a lot to get people to come to your cave, not that guy's cave. So we got these cave wars going on where people are fighting with each other. They're deceiving people. They have these uh, headhunters that they're putting out on the road telling them, hey, if you come over here, you can go to Mammoth Cave. Even though this may not be Mammoth Cave over here, this could be some other cave. They're telling you it's Mammoth Cave. Well, one of the men who owned a cave here was named Floyd Collins. He had a cave named Crystal Cave, and it was off the beaten path. Not a lot of people wanted to come there. There was nowhere to stay. Even though it was beautiful inside, it just wasn't as attractive as Mammoth Cave. Floyd knew he needed to do something. So he decided that he was going to find a cave that would be more attractive to people. And he was an expert caver, so he was used to exploring caves. And he finds this other cave called Sand Cave. And he thinks to himself, if I can get far enough through into this cave, maybe I can get this to have an opening into Mammoth Cave, and then I can tell people that they can get to Mammoth Cave through this cave. So he goes in one day, and he's exploring. He's told his brother what he's doing, and he's told the farmer who owned the land there what he was doing as well. It's really hard for him to get through. It's very narrow. It finally starts to open up, and he's like, you know, this really could work out. If I can get that front area opened up more, I think I can get people to come into here. But his lantern is starting to lose its light. So he's like, you know, I need to head back home. I'll come back tomorrow and figure out what else I want to do here. Well, unfortunately, as he's turning to leave, he steps into a crevice and his foot gets lodged a little bit. And as he goes to pull his foot out, he unsettles some boulders that are there. And one of them was a huge boulder that fell against his leg and it completely pinned him. A couple more boulders fell and pinned his arms. He was completely trapped. They called it a stone straitjacket. 
So Floyd lays there for a while and his brother realizes that he's not come home. He knows where he's gone. He thinks something's happened. Floyd has gotten trapped and needed to be rescued before. So this is not new. He gets down into the cave and he sees the predicament that Floyd is in. So he goes to get help and the rest of the family comes. It's accessible enough for them to get food and water to Floyd, but they can't get him out. So a bunch of miners come from all these different states and from all these other caves and mines from around there. And they're trying to get Floyd out. And in the process of trying to get him out of there, they may have actually endangered him a little bit. It's taking them several days. And during this time, the newspapers catch on to the story. And it makes national news and even international news. Everybody's talking about Floyd Collins, who's trapped in this cave. And we know that feel nowadays. Whenever there's miners who get trapped in a mine, it tends to make national news as well. There was this one newspaper guy who was a really small guy, and he was able to wiggle his way in, and he was interviewing Floyd. He would go back and forth, and he would tell Floyd how the progress was going with getting him free and take him food and water, and he kept updating the newspapers with everything that was going on. Well, eventually, after a couple of days, there was another rock slide, and this one blocked the path completely. And they realized, the miner said, there's no way we can get through this way. We need to do something else. So the governor of the state of Kentucky said, okay, I'm going to call in the National Guard because we need the big guns to come in here and help us. So the National Guard comes in and they're digging in from a different way to get to Floyd. Unfortunately, it took them 17 days to get to him. And you can imagine without food and water during that whole time, when they did finally reach Floyd, he was dead. Later on, experts will study him and find out that he actually probably made it to the 15th day, so he almost survived long enough to be rescued. It's still a precarious situation. They can't get his body out, so they decide to just leave him there. Well, Floyd's brother is not going to have any of that. He says, I'm getting my brother out of there. So he takes a couple other miners, and they do manage to get Floyd's body out of there. They take him, and they bury him. Now, while Floyd was down in this cave for those 17 days that it took them to get to him, A circus atmosphere developed outside of the cave. They were selling popcorn and peanuts and probably Cracker Jacks. And all of these people wanted to get a little piece of what was going on here. And it still stayed a very famous story even after Floyd's death. Floyd's father, Lee Collins, still owned the cave. And he decided that he wanted to sell it. So he sold it in 1927 to Dr. Harry B. Thomas. Thomas not only bought the cave, but he bought the family's property. And buried on that property was Floyd Collins. He got this fabulous idea. He decided that he wanted to put Floyd on display. So he exhumed Floyd, put him in a glass-topped coffin, and put him at the entrance of Sand Cave so that everybody could see Floyd as they were coming in to tour the cave. And it was a huge tourist attraction. When Floyd's family heard about this, of course, they were like, Oh, we don't want you displaying his body. We want you to put it back. But they had no way of stopping it. So for a long while, Floyd's body was on display. Then his body was stolen because we still had some cave wars going on. And people realized that that was a huge tourist attraction. If they got rid of the body, then maybe the sand cave wouldn't be doing so well. Later, Floyd's body was found again, only it was missing the left leg. And nobody knows whatever happened to his left leg. Thomas gets the body back. He decides to put it in a real coffin that's solid and puts him back in the cave. And Floyd is going to stay there until 1989 when it was given a proper burial. 
The park was established as a national park on July 1st, 1941, and tours have been running ever since. A little fun fact about Mammoth Cave is that it is actually the setting for H.P. Lovecraft's short story, The Beast in the Cave. And maybe he knew a little something about the cave that most people don't really think about. And that's what could be residing in this cave. Is it possible that there are some supernatural beings that are within the Mammoth Cave? Well, there certainly are a lot of ghost stories, and I'm going to share some of those with you now. As is the case with so many caves, there's people who venture in that claim to see shadowy figures, flashes of light, and to hear strange noises. Many people get strange feelings when they're in a cave, too. If you think about it, you're underground, your equilibrium's a little bit off, there's different elements and minerals down there, lots of things that could cause you to feel a little, quote-unquote, off. While I was visiting Mammoth Cave, I didn't really feel anything weird, and I didn't have any weird experiences. But there are plenty of people who have had experiences. A former tour guide here was named Charlie Hanyon, and he and a friend were leading a lantern tour of the cave. And while he was talking to the group, a little girl asked him who the man was that was standing near the rocks behind him. Hanyon looked over to where she was pointing, and he saw a man in old-fashioned formal type attire. He looked like a tourist from a time long ago, so wearing some fancier clothes. Hanyon looked at him for a while, and then all of a sudden, he vanished. Hanyon said the really weird part came the following week when we were on the same tour. As the tour group reached the same point in the cave, a guide asked if there were any questions. A woman raised her hand and asked if strange things were ever seen in this part of the cave. The woman was a tourist and claimed to be a psychic. She pointed over the place in the rocks where Hanyon had seen the man the week before, and she asked who that person was. It was the same spot where we'd seen it before. I didn't see it at that time. Another tour guide named Joy Lyons had an experience. She said she was taking a tour through a few years ago, and there were two other guides who had joined her. They reached a point on the trail that's been dubbed the Methodist Church, and they usually turn out all the lights so the visitors could experience the cave in pitch blackness. And I actually experienced this. It's an area where they have a bunch of log benches that you can sit down on so nobody's wandering around. And when they turn those lights out, it is blacker than black in there, darker than dark. You can't see your hand in front of your face. She said she was standing at the back of the group when the lights went out. and She could hear the lead ranger talking about the experience. Then she felt something shove her right between her shoulder blades. It was hard enough that she actually fell forward a little bit and had to catch herself. She turned to another ranger who was standing next to her and she whispered to him to stop clowning around. She assumed that he had hit her. A little bit later, the lead ranger lit up his lantern and she saw that the other ranger that she had said, you know, stop clowning around was nowhere near her. He was about 70 feet away and she hadn't heard him walk away from her. There was no way that he could have shoved her and then walked so far in that darkness. There was no one near me, she said, but it was a playful shove. There are a number of us who feel things in various parts of the cave. It's not frightening, but it's something else. Now, I don't know the name of the tour guide that we had, but we asked her if she'd ever had any haunting experience, and she said that she had, and that other rangers had also had experiences too. There was another ranger who was taking a group through, 
And she noticed that there was a guy who kept lagging behind. He was wearing a striped shirt and denim overalls. She kept keeping an eye on him because he just kept lagging behind. Finally, they were getting towards the end of the tour, and she noticed that the guy was nowhere near the group anymore. So she kind of stepped back, tried to see if she could see him anywhere. She didn't see him anywhere. So she calls another tour guide over and says, you know, there's this guy in a striped shirt wearing these denim overalls, and I just don't know where he went to, but he was at the back of the group. I wonder if he wandered off somewhere. So the tour guide goes off to see if he can find this guy, doesn't find him anywhere. She gets rid of her group, goes back in there to see if she can find him, and they never did find this man. So either he was somebody who got himself lost in the cave, or was he someone maybe in a spiritual form? Another former employee, George Wood, was working with another guy named Bill Cobb, and they were doing some studies in Crystal Cave. They were looking to see how the groundwater was flowing through there. It was taking them quite a while, and they didn't get to the last spring until it was already dark out. Wood said that he was going to wait near the truck while Cobb went to go check out the spring. So Wood is sitting there, and all of a sudden he hears the sound of a man crying out in the darkness. So he's thinking that it was Cobb yelling for help although the voice seemed a little high-pitched to be his buddy. And it was really, really faint. He had to listen carefully to hear what it was saying. The voice was crying out, Help me, help me, help me, I'm trapped. Johnny, help me. It called out over and over again. George Wood is thinking, Okay, my name's not Johnny, so if Cobb is yelling for me, he's got the wrong name, and he could not figure out who this possibly could be. A few minutes later, Cobb finally comes over and Wood asked him if he'd been calling for him to come help him. Cobb just looked at him like he was crazy and said, no, I was just overlooking at the spring. I didn't hear anything. But the men did feel a cold chill. Later, the men thought perhaps this was the spirit of Floyd Collins because, of course, he would have been trapped and would have been calling out for help. And he did supposedly have a friend named Johnny Gerald. Floyd Collins is the most famous ghost here at Mammoth Cave. It wasn't just Cobb and Wood who may have experienced things with him. Lots of people have had experiences with him. There were a couple of geologists by the name of Art and Peg Palmer. I picked up a book when I was at Mammoth Cave called Scary Stories of Mammoth Cave, and it's written by Colleen O'Connor Olson and Charles Hanyon. And they share a couple of stories that Art and Peg told them. The two of us were in the upper southern end of the Lost Passage on a lengthy photo trip. I was setting up for a sensuous portrayal of certain nodules when I became aware of a rhythmic pounding from down the passage. It was intense but muffled, as though someone were beating vigorously with a hammer on a slab of rock about 500 feet away. Eventually, Peg looked up and asked, What's that noise? Naturally, I played dumb and said, What noise? And then, Oh, that. It's just the reverberation of our heartbeats in this dome part of the ceiling. Uh-huh. Yeah our heartbeats would be making that kind of a noise inside of a cave. Eventually, Art had to admit that the sound was definitely coming from down the passage, and they knew that this was not the fluttering of bat wings or some other weird natural phenomenon. Couldn't be dripping water either. This was a perfectly dry passage, and of course the drips would not have been making such a hammer on a slab of rock sound. They decided to shift their activities to a different part of the cave, Ironically, that meant heading toward the sound, but as they drew near to the apparent source, the sound faded away. The overlaying land is uninhabited and there are no roads. There's no machinery in the area and no one else had access to the cave that week. Few people knew how to get to this part of the cave and they knew there was nobody down there with them. So what caused the noise? 
Years later, it dawned on us that the sound appeared to emanate from the very spot where Floyd Collins had set up a small camp and occasionally paused to eat and where he would flatten his bean cans with a rock. So is that perhaps the sound they were hearing? And is it residual? In another story, he and his wife were in a part of the Mammoth Cave called the Grand Canyon, and they heard what sounded like a very large bird flapping around inside the cave. Now, the entrance to the cave was too small for a large bird to come through there. They thought it sounded like an owl, but there was no way that it could get in there. This had to have been bigger than a bat. They both heard the noise. They heard it going around. They couldn't see what was making it at all. And they never did find anything that indicated a bird had been in there. Not a dead bird, no feathers, nothing. So they're not sure what had ever made those sounds. Another story that has been told about Floyd is he apparently was a guy who liked to drink, especially some whiskey. There was a group in here at one time, and they noticed that there was an old whiskey bottle sitting up on a rock shelf. And as they passed by it, they heard what sounded like fingers flicking against the glass bottle. I think you all can envision what that sound would sound like. When they turned around to see who had made that noise, there was nobody behind them, and the whiskey bottle was just sitting there, still up on the shelf. And then all of a sudden, it moved away from the shelf and crashed down onto the floor in front of them. They have no idea how that happened, but many of them believe that it was Floyd Collins making his presence known. There is supposedly a young female ghost here named Melissa. Apparently what she had done is she was in love with her tutor, but he was not in love with her. He loved another woman. So she invited him to come to the cave and she was going to give him a tour because she knew the cave really well. She brings him into the cave and then dashes off and leaves him lost. Now, she wasn't hoping for anything bad to happen to him. I think she just wanted to give him a good scare. But when she went back to find him, she couldn't find him anywhere. And he never did come out. She later confessed her misdeed on her deathbed when she died from TB. And many people believe that's why she's come back to the cave, that she's looking for her lost love. Gary Bremer is a former Mammoth Cave guide, and he thinks there might be something to this story about Melissa. He and four other guides were in a boat on Echo River. This is an underground stream that lies deep in the cave. One of the men had left so that he could get another paddle for the boat before they launched off, and Bremer remembered what happened next. The three of us in the boat all heard a woman calling out. It wasn't screaming, but it was as though she were looking for someone. The next day, they asked some of the other guides if anyone else had ever had such an experience. And one of the guides told him about a murder that was supposed to have taken place in that area and told him the story about Melissa. Bremer had never heard the story. So was this Melissa calling out? And then I found over on the ghostandghouls.com website the following story. This July 2018, my sister and I went on a tour in Mammoth Cave. At one point, the ranger asked everyone to turn off or cover all light sources so we could see how dark the cave was. We did, and I heard a woman's voice behind me. She was clearly upset about something. A moment later, a man behind me said, What the hell are you doing? Then I felt a hand move across my wrist and cover my watch for about two or three seconds. Later, when the light came back, my sister asked if I'd heard the commotion. She said that the woman claimed someone had grabbed her. I told my sister that I felt her hand touching my wrist. She swore she never touched me. We soon realized that someone or something touched that woman, that man, and me while the lights were off. The Green River, which is right near Mammoth Cave, also is said to have its own monster in it. 
In the early 1940s, several eyewitnesses claimed that there was a monster there, and it was said to be about 12 feet long and weigh about 300 pounds. And when it jumped, the water would splash 200 feet high. There was a ferryman who claimed that he had seen it, and he said, It's got a powerful big head. It could swallow a man without no trouble. Once it opened its mouth and I got a glimpse inside, I could have rolled a barrel, and I don't mean a keg, I mean a big barrel in its mouth. It's got fins and a tail just like any fish and eyes as big as horse apples setting in its head. It's got the longest whiskers or feelers you ever saw, and once when it jumped, I thought I saw legs on its belly, but I can't rightly say that they were legs. So is there a Loch Ness-type creature right near Mammoth Cave? Also, remember Stephen Bishop that I told you about, the tour guide, who had discovered all these things and crossed over the bottomless pit? Well, obviously, since he loved this cave so much, he was very attached to it. He was buried in the cemetery that's right near Mammoth Cave. I believe it's called Old Guide Cemetery, something like that. Anyway, there are reports that his apparition has been seen inside the cave, and people describe him to a T even though most people aren't aware of who he is or why he would be in the cave. They see a person of color who has a mustache and very chiseled features, and this is the way that Stephen Bishop appeared. So kind of cool to think that he would be coming back to a cave that meant so much to him. So here we have a cave that has had mummies, people with TB, stories of devils and ghosts within it. Quite a crazy place. But could there be someone else here? Something known as the trickster. Now, again, I don't want to spoil the hell your documentary for you, but I will say that there's another part of the documentary where they go into a cave and are doing some research in there and trying to connect with spirits. And they appear to be connecting with something, at least one spirit, if not multiple spirits. And whatever it is that they're calling to, it keeps making noise and indicating that it wants them to come further into the cave. And you keep getting this feeling that something is trying to draw them in. I'm not going to tell you everything that happens, but I can tell you I wouldn't have wanted to follow into there. And just thinking back, and this is why I started thinking, is it saying, watch out for the coyote? Or is it saying, I am coyote? Coyote is something that has been believed in by indigenous people all the way back to the Aztecs and the Maya. The Aztecs called him Hugh Hugh Coyotl, the old coyote. He's a trickster, capable of pulling lots of pranks, reversals, and generally he's thought of as being cruel. And one of the key things that caught my attention about this trickster god is that he's a shapeshifter. So is it possible for him to make appearances as little people, like perhaps goblins coming in and out of a cave? He can transform himself into anything that could be human or animal. There are Native Americans who claim that Coyote created the Milky Way and also the diversity in mankind. Now, the Coyote's not all bad. A lot of Native American tribes see him as being an inspiration. But I look at him more like Loki. 
I think he and Loki probably make good friends or they are one in the same. Now, one of the reasons why he's more inspiring to some people is that it's said that he brought things to human beings like fire. And so he's thought to be maybe a benefactor of the people. Now, although if he's a trickster, I don't know if I would trust him to show me things like fire. But there are also other tribes like the Paiute and the Shoshone who look at Coyote as being malevolent and a lecherous trickster. There are stories in which he's depicted as a serial rapist who uses trickery to attack his victims. The Aztecs depicted him as more of a balanced god, that he was dualistic. He had a good side and an evil side and balanced himself out. He was a god of music and dance that also incorporated some mischief. And in a lot of the ways that you see him depicted, he's seen as a coyote that's dancing around with human hands and feet. So I leave it up to you. I hope you check out the documentary, see what you think about it. Most importantly, I hope you check out some of these caves in Kentucky. They really are very cool. Are they haunted? That is for you to decide. I want to encourage you guys to check out the website at historyghostbump.com. And if you want to send me some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. I got an email from Amy and she writes, when I was pregnant with my youngest daughter, my oldest would talk to my belly and call the baby Katie, even before we knew the sex. So after we found out she was a girl, we would planned to name her Caitlin Page. When the baby was born and before Jade saw her, I remember telling my husband that she didn't look like a Caitlin, but she felt like Paige. He agreed with me, but we wanted to be sure before we changed it. When Jade finally saw her for the first time after calling her Katie for months, she looked at the new baby and said, that's not her. So we were definitely changing the first name. After two days, the nurse said the baby couldn't leave without a name. I don't remember the details because that was 20 years ago, but at some point, Jade said she wanted Paige to come home. She hadn't been in the room when my husband and I decided she looked like a Paige, and we still hadn't decided on a first name. I asked Jade what she thought the baby's first name should be. Jade, who was about three and a half at the time, told me that Paige was her first name. It wasn't even, hey, uh, I think her name should be this, or yeah, I like that name. It was, that is who she is. I played along with her and asked what Paige's middle name was. She said it was like her own, but not the same. She said it was kind of a boy name, but it looked like her, Jade's first name, and it would kind of mean the same. I was absolutely dumbfounded. Jade's middle name is Ryan, and it's a nod to her Irish heritage. Jade didn't know how to articulate what she was trying to say, but I knew a visual would help her, so I started writing names down, and after a lot of frustration and a three-year-old's attempt to explain, I finally understood what she was trying to say. That is why her baby sister's name is Paige Aaron, and it's spelled E-R-Y-N. It's a huge nod to their Irish heritage, and the Y is like the one in Jade's name. And for a three-year-old, it sounds like a boy name. Jade never mentioned the name Katie again, and when asked, she said she didn't know what we were talking about, like the memory had vanished. My girls are now 23 and 20 and have been inseparable since the day we brought Paige home from the hospital. I don't know who Katie was. I don't want to think of another being trying to invade my unborn child, but Jade was so absolute in that name and then equally absolute that it wasn't her. When she said that's not her, it was like she didn't recognize her. So if she didn't recognize her, does that mean she would have recognized Katie? I don't know. But one truth that I've never really studied before is how strongly everyone felt that the baby should be called Paige. She couldn't have ever been anyone else, almost like she was Paige before she was ever conceived. Here's a little fun fact. Paige was born seven minutes after I arrived at the hospital, so the nurse delivered her without meds. Oh my gosh. That nurse told us her daughter was named Caitlin, and they called her Katie. 
And she told us three babies born in the hospital that same night were all named Caitlin. So did Jade have a strange premonition that a connection to someone called Katie would be involved with her sister's delivery? Is Katie a past soul living through three other 20-year-olds born at the same hospital on the same night? Or was that just a very popular name and Katie just part of a toddler's imagination? That is for you to decide. (laughs) I love it. I also got an email from, and I'm not even going to attempt this name because I know I'm going to butcher it, but your first name is H-U-Y. Thank you so much for writing. Let me know that you've been listening to the podcast and been enjoying both the history and the haunting part. And thank you for your suggestion. I've definitely added it to the list. And then finally, I heard from Jill. I just listened to your New Orleans episode. I have an answer to why an O'Reilly was sent by the Spanish. The Cromwellian conquest of Ireland or Cromwellian war in Ireland, which was from 1649 to 1653, pushed my ancestors out of Ireland, specifically Brifney, known today as County Cavan. My 11th great-grandfather was king of Brefin at the time. The British defeated the clans and enforced the Protestant religion and forced the landowners to pay rent for their own property. The majority of the O'Reilly sons left with their families. Many went to England while my direct ancestor, 10th great-grandfather, came to America and purchased the land where our U.S. capital stands today. His brother went to Spain to fight against the English. All of the sons were very well educated and could speak multiple languages, so he was beneficial to Spain since he spoke Spanish, Gaelic, French, and English fluently. Well, isn't that fascinating? And thank you for sharing that, Jill, because I was just like, when I was doing the research, I kept going, how can this guy's last name be O'Reilly and he's with the Spanish? just didn't make any sense. Now it does. I just got back from a trip to the Bahamas, so I put up a bonus cast featuring the myths, legends, and some haunts of some forts in the Bahamas. If you guys sign up at the $5 or above level over at Patreon or on PayPal, you get access to that and all of the past archives. There are over, I think, 150 bonus episodes now, so if you need more to listen to, there's plenty there for you. You can check that out at patreon.com forward slash history goes bump. And now on to some Apple podcast reviews. We have Alphaba the second fabulous dose of haunted history, five stars. I've been listening since summer of last year and this podcast never disappoints. The host Diane dives into the details about various topics and locations, a unique spin on the paranormal offering skepticism based in actual history debunking falsities, and offering up some haunted realness. And of course, we live or die for Mort's eulogies. Awesome. Shamrick79, my new favorite paranormal podcast, five stars. I discovered this podcast due to a shout out from Selena at the Haunted Estate, and I'm so glad I checked it out. It has quickly become my favorite to listen to while doing household chores. I love history and I'm intrigued by the paranormal. And this podcast is a great blend of both. It's well-written and Diane is well-spoken. My list of future trips and vacation spots grows with each episode. Thanks for making my never-ending mundane laundry folding bearable. Well, you are welcome. And then we have another one from the UK, LJ Bramman. Fantastic podcast, five stars. Love this podcast. Thanks so much for doing what you do for free. I'll be signing up to Patreon. I love to hear your knowledgeable and informative tales. Even though most are not from where I live, the UK doesn't stop me thoroughly enjoying them. Well, thank you for that. If you haven't left a review over at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast, please think about doing so. I would greatly appreciate it. I want to thank you guys for tuning in to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. 
I want to thank Jonathan Smith for increasing your donation. You will be moved into a chest tomb. And welcome to Cynthia Moss. You will be getting buried under a marble headstone, which of course means you get one bonus episode every single month. How awesome is that? All right, Mort, time for some more of your eulogies. Take it away, big guy. Eulogies by Mort. Beth and the yacht was a magical lady. Perhaps she will teach me some things, maybe. She was part of the spooky crew on the Queen Mary. Because she must like things that are scary. Bobby Watts was a lady full of fun. She seemed to be a fan of Clemson. Her sorority was Delta Sigma Theta. Her time in the afterlife is not in beta. Teddy Clark came from the state of the beehive. Unfortunately, she is no longer alive. She was born under the sign of cancer. Questions about the afterlife she can now answer. Rocky Mellon was a fan of the creepy. His passing has caused me to be weepy. His home state was rather large. Now he'll have plenty of time to recharge. Brian Jones had served in the US Army. So I'd like him around when it's stormy. He lived in a state that was evergreen. And with them bombing he should stay pristine. Jennifer Almond was insanely addicted to all things Disney. And was a big fan of old Hollywood history. She also liked stories that included Abu. Now she is in the burial queue. Karen Miller knew how to get her Disney on. She liked to visit there with her spawn. She had lived in the state of the Buckeye. When I lowered her casket, she yelled bonsai. 